Well, welcome to the third session of the Bird's Eye View of the Bible. And let us begin with prayer. I have a prayer from St. Origen, uh, one of the church fathers, uh, third, fourth century. Lord, put your hands on our eyes that we shall be able to see not only that which is visible, but also that which is invisible. Let our eyes be focused not only on that which is present, but also on that which is to come. Unseal the heart's vision that we may gaze on God in his glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, now I have been um, uh, teasing you somewhat uh, about whether there would be a test. <laughs> I have created a test. Uh, it's a take-home test. And um, here's what it is. It consists of two pieces of paper. One is a two-sided summary of all the books of the Old Testament in one or two sentences, trying to identify things that are distinctive about each book. Okay? So that's your study. So read that about 20 times. <laughs> and then when you're, you feel you're ready, the test is, and it's not timed, um, I've uh, picked out 20 verses from the Old Testament, and then you have to identify what book it's from. Oh, jeez. No, that's never happened for me. Oh, it's okay. the old Bible, because everything's underlined. Now... <laughs> It's easy enough to cheat. You could just type it into Google, and I'm sure it would tell you, but that's not the point. So see, the, the, the thing is, I've chosen texts that are somewhat distinctive of the book, trying to make it so it's more that book than any other book. And so if you've, if you've read this well, uh, you might be able to... <laughs> 30 times, did you say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's that. So I'll, I'll give you the answers later. If you're interested in that, I'll leave these over here. And then, and then, yes. Goodness sakes. Oh my goodness. Also, uh, we did have a question last time about Jewish texts. Uh, so I wanted to uh, just put this up on the screen. We talked about some of these last time, just very briefly. But if, if this was a synagogue, uh, what would be the text that we'd be interested in? Well, of course, the Torah is the foundation for all Jewish communities. Um, and if you were to buy a, a Bible, like what we have from a Jewish bookstore, it would be called Tanakh. Tanakh isn't really a word, it's, it's an acronym. 
Um, and the, the vowels don't matter, it's the consonants that matter. Uh, and it's made up of the first letters of Torah, Prophets, and Writings, which is Torah, Nevaim, and Kutavim. So T, N, and it's a KH sound. So, so that's what Tanakh uh, means. It's, it's um, an acronym. Um, so those would be the... Uh, Torah is your most uh, fundamental text, and then Tanakh. Um, and then there's beginning uh, in, the, I don't know, 2nd century BC, rabbinic commentaries on Tanakh, on Torah and, and the rest. Uh, and they continue, and some rabbinic uh, commentaries are more important than others. But those would be uh, texts that you'd study. Now that is all the written law, if you like, the written text. Alongside the written text in Jewish tradition is an oral text. So the tradition is that Moses passed on by word of mouth um, uh, teachings that got transmitted through the ge uh, generations and uh, they finally got written down so the tradition goes uh, first of all in the Mishnah in about AD 200 and um, uh, and then uh, in the Talmud in about AD 500 actually there's two Talmuds there's one that originates in Jerusalem and one that originates in Babylon. And the Babylonian one is the, is the one more commonly referred to. But if you were a Jewish student, uh, you would be reading, in addition to Tanakh, you'd be reading uh, Mishnah and, a, and in particular Talmud, which is, um, if you had a bookshelf this long, it would, it, it would fill that. It's that much. Uh, and to think these are people, there are people who memorize this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very difficult to read also. Um, it, it, it's often in um, anecdotal form. And then there are commentaries on Mishnah and um, Talmud, uh, two of the most important, uh, Rashi and uh, Moses Maimonides. <coughs> from, uh, I think, the 10th and the 12th centuries, somewhere in there. Uh, those would be very important texts. And then one other I put down, uh, Jewish mysticism, beginning around the 12th century, with the Kabbalah. Uh, that's, that's another text that would be um, common for all kinds of Jewish mysticism. So those would be the texts that you'd be interested in. Okay? but we're just trying to deal with the Old Testament here. Okay, we, um, we started talking about prophecy last time, and we got to the point, let me see if I can get to the point, of Samuel. And we talked about Samuel being a prototypical uh, a, a prophet. He was, um, he was a, an authority in Israel, separate from that of the king. So he's the person who anoints kings, he tells the king when he's done, <laughs> uh, 
Um, he specifies the rights and duties of the king. He can rebuke the king. Uh, so he's, he's um, yeah, he, he, prophecy uh, comes into its own with the rise of monarchy in Israel. So it's, it's, a, it's an authority to keep monarchy in check. And then there are all kinds of prophets in uh, the books of Samuel and Kings. If you read them, these are some of them. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about them. Uh, most of them we don't know very much about. There's, there's just one or two texts where they uh, uh, come out. We know much more of Elijah and Elisha. Elisha is the weirdest of the prophets. I mean, he just does odd things. Um, somebody lost their axe, and so in in the river, and so he throws a piece of wood where the axe fell in, and the axe floats. I don't know. That's the story. Um, <clears throat> that there's a yeah. There's a number of stories about Elisha that are just quite quite odd. Uh, but anyways, these are one of the things that's important in all of these. Uh, uh, prophets is this text that a Nathan uh, near the top of this list actually yeah Nathan who was the prophet in David's time uh, one of the prophets in David's time and he's the one who establishes with David the covenant remember we talked about covenant last time the covenant that God had that there would always be on uh, the throne in Jerusalem, a descendant of David. And this is the text. Uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors. I will raise up uh, your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me. That's, that's the temple that Solomon will build. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Uh, so, 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 some really important um, language in there. But as you can see, this is the basis for uh, there being a descendant of David on the throne and indeed for Messiah being a descendant of David. Okay, good. Let's jump ahead to what we call the classical prophets then. And these are the ones who write down their prophecies uh, that we have books of. Um, I gave you in your notes just some historical context for you to remember uh, different prophets writing at different times. Um, so we've got, uh, for example, Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah during the Assyrian, um, when this, the Assyrians were strong. Um, after that, we've got uh, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, and so on. D uh, during the Babylonian era, we have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and uh, second Isaiah. I'll comment on that in just a minute. And then during the Persian times, we have uh, Haggai, Malachi, Zechariah, 
the third Isaiah. Oh, we got a knock on the window. Thank you very much. Uh, just a comment there on uh, Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah. It's um, generally thought that the book of Isaiah was written by three different prophets. Um, the first prophet in the 8th century, early 7th century, uh, was in Jerusalem. We, we call him Isaiah of Jerusalem. Um, chapters 1 to 39 of the book of Isaiah. The second one was uh, prophesying during the time of the exile, the Babylonian exile, and those are chapters 40 to 55. And then the third, um, the third section, the third prophet, uh, beginning in chapter 56, going up to 66, uh, comes after uh, the return from exile. Uh, that's, the, that's the general scholarly opinion. It's a bit more complex than that, but that's the general framework of it. And uh, how do we know this? We, it, it's knowing it from how the books are written. Uh, for example, in the first 39 books, you get a lot of critique about what's going on in Jerusalem. A lot of critique about um, the temple uh, sacrifices, for example, and about injustice in the courts and so forth. And then you come to chapter 40 and it, begin, and, and it begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfortably. Uh, you know the text from the Messiah. Um, and you say, whoa, something has happened here. <laughs> Why are we speaking comfortably to these people whose um, penalty has been paid for? Right? Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's things like that. Interestingly, we have no actual evidence of three different books. The oldest copy of the book of Isaiah, which was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, is one long scroll of Isaiah, wow. chapters 1 to 66. It's, it's the greatest discovery in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's in wherever they are in Israel. Uh, hopefully they're still there. Hmm. Yeah, okay, anyways. Moving on. Was that okay? Is it, any questions on that? Just wanted to review the historical context. Remembering that these people are writing in historical context. Um, now, so what I'm going to do uh, with you now is, uh, it's a bit of a difficult thing. I, I mean, what do we do? Do we... <coughs> Do I summarize for you each book of the prophets? Well, you can do that by reading the text. So what I'm going to try to do is to summarize what the prophets were about. Um, some of these are... I mean, the prophets were individuals, and they had different concerns. Um, uh, and so what I say here will um, attend to one prophet, but perhaps not another. But I'm trying to give a general sense of what the, if the prophets got together and gave a common statement, uh, maybe uh, this is something like what that would be, okay? So we're really blurring any distinctives between the prophets here. 
Um, what was the prophets about? A new experience of God. Let's see if you give me you work. Oh. There we are. Okay. Uh, and, and, sorry, um, we are also going to go rather quickly through this material. So I can't stress enough how important it would be to take some time and look up the actual text when you go home that you've got in your notes. Uh, so that you see examples of the various uh, things that I'm saying here. A, a revolutionary power at work in the nation. This is uh, how uh, uh, prophets uh, understood God um, to be confronting Israel. And the expression they often use is the word of the Lord. The word of Yahweh is this power that is going to challenge the present order in, in Israel. So that's the whole point of the word of the Lord came to me. It, it is this power that is uh, life-changing. Okay. A lot of what the, uh, the prophets are doing are uh, critiquing the nation. Remember with Samuel and Nathan and Gad, the ones that uh, came after them, who, who, whom were they critiquing? The king. One of the very interesting things then about these prophets, beginning with Amos, is that the, the critique extends for the whole nation. That's why they wrote things down, to have a wider readership. So this started in the 8th century, and Amos was the first. Uh, he was in, in the north. So it's a critique of the whole nation. So if, if you're a preacher, you're not just preaching to the king to do this or that. You're preaching to the nation. And so you're preaching to people to become converts, to behave in a certain way. So the uh, addresses to the whole nation rather than just the king, uh, speaking to a chosen people, challenging a sense of entitlement or a confusion between election and nationalism. This is one of the things that prophets again and again are going to be confronting Am I part of the people of God simply because of how I was born? Right? Is it nationalism that defines who the people of God are? Or is it something else? And the prophets are going to say, no, it's something else. And so you're going to see, begin to see the development of... Um, the idea of a remnant within Israel. There's Israel as the, as the nation, but you've got the believing remnant within that. And so you'll hear texts like, um, uh, God is going to bring a remnant back from exile. Okay. So uh, a critique of the, the, the nation. Let's get a bit more to the message of the prophets. The disposition of the prophets themselves, uh, prophecy as a challenge and encouragement. Um, so, 
So to dispense with the idea that prophecy is primarily about predicting the future, it's not. It, it, it's, it's more like preaching. It's, it's comforting and challenging. Uh, how, how, how is it to, to, um, to challenge the comfortable and to comfort the challenged? <laughs> uh, that's primarily what the prophets are about. Now, yes, there's a future orientation in places in the sense that if you do this, this will be the consequence. If you don't do this, then that will be the consequence. That's where the future orientation typically comes in the, in the uh, prophets. But it's not simply about prediction. Um, you've got to read a fair bit in the prophets, actually, before you find predictions of the future. Uh, prophets are also confident in God's faithfulness in spite of judgment. In other words, as much as they rail against what's going on in Israel, in, in Judah or in, in Israel, there's a hopefulness. I don't think any of them, I, I would say, uh, are given totally to despair. Even Jeremiah, who... Um, complained a lot, and for good reason, and for, and for good reason, but there's always a, 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 a hopefulness. They, they did not believe God was giving up on Israel. Yeah. Um, the content of the, of the prophecies, uh, we can talk about social critique and we can talk about religious critique. So uh, prophets were often defending the cause of the poor. These are people who uh, are powerless to defend themselves. And the stereotypical uh, ones are widows and orphans. In that society, those people have no one to defend them. They can easily be sold into slavery. The, the ideal in Israel was that the community was to be one of equality, maintaining a fair, dis, uh, fair distribution and perpetual ownership of the land. This, however, did not last. And the, the development of the monarchy is part of, part of the issue. Uh, the monarchy brought about a variety of new social realities, such as taxation. You've got to tax people to support um, armies and the royal court and so forth. Uh, and you can see, once you've got a monarchy, you have preference to the family and friends of the king over ordinary citizens. And in order to maintain this power, the king courted those who had forms of power, namely the wealthy. So that's the situation that develops, and you need the prophets to come in and expose the injustice of that. Okay. So you have the social critique. Oh, here's Amos, for example. Thus says the Lord... For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will 
not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way. The typical thing that Amos is saying here. And then religious, religious uh, the word religious is somewhat anachronistic. It's the word that we use for what's happening. It's what's going on. It's the temple system. Um, to, to say, I, I, I mean, we think of religious as that which has to do with God. All of life has to do with God. <laughs> um, it, it, the, the critique here is against the temple system. So it's against the... Um, the religious uh, uh, practices like offering sacrifices, attending festivals, praying, fasting, were useless, said the prophets, when divorced from a passion for justice and righteousness in the community, and indeed for the expression of steadfast love. So in other words, they're against the pious appearance of devotion. Right? Um, I think I've lost some texts there. Are there texts there on your, mm -hmm. uh, on, on your notes? Isaiah 1? Yeah, okay, good. So have a look at those, because those are some very important texts. Um, the problem with worship rites was often that they obscured the way God wanted to challenge the status quo. That is, the worship system had tamed Yahweh. Uh, you think of the... Is he a tame lion? <laughs> From uh, the Darnia Chronicles? Uh, of course, he's not a tame lion. He's a wild lion. But he's a good lion. That was the point. Uh, the primary uh, pattern, sorry, the primary problem with cultic worship that the experience, uh, that the prophets experienced was this, that they obscured what they considered to be of primary importance. That people be led into an encounter with God who presents a radical challenge to their lives. The prophets spoke of a power that was going to destroy all pretense of religion. Everything that misrepresented God. I think I have another one from Amos. I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being well of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Text, of course, that Martin Luther would uh, make much of. Um, I just note here the things that uh, Amos is saying that God despises are things that were prescribed in Torah. Right? We're talking about festivals and assemblies and grain offerings, burnt offerings. 
That's stuff from Torah. So the point is that you can do all of you can be Torah observant and still oppress the poor. Right? Or like the man that came to Jesus, uh, what more do I need? Yeah, you can be Torah observant, but still not be generous. So that's the kind of thing that the prophets are uh, um, coming up with. Um, one of the things, of course, as, as Christians, we want to note this, uh, there's often the hope for an ideal king expressed. Uh, so in light of the promise that we read a little bit earlier, 2 Samuel 7, you get expressions of hope for an ideal king who would deliver Israel from her enemies and who would establish uh, uh, justice and peace. Did I leave this one in? Yes, uh, and we get this at Christmas all the time. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, and a branch grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And of course, so that's the, and you get this again and again, uh, the expression of hope for an ideal <clears throat> ruler and one who's a descendant of David. Okay. Uh, so look up those, uh, look, look, look up those other texts as well, and you'll recognize them uh, readily enough. Um, sorry, there's a, the, this one goes on, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with justice he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, etc., etc. Okay. Uh, the focal point is Zion. So this is interesting. Um, and it's just one of the things that we should take note of. And Zion, of course, is, is uh, actually a re relatively small hill, the mound where at the time the Solomon's temple was built in Jerusalem, that's Zion. And it becomes part of the, in the ancient Near Eastern mythology, you had the gods uh, residing in the mountains, the high mountains. And so Israel borrows that imagery uh, to talk about Zion, where the temple is, where Yahweh dwells. And so this, is, this becomes a, a, a major focal point. Uh, Yahweh has chosen Zion as his dwelling place. You get this in the Psalms. Uh, Zion is the highest point of the earth. <laughs> it's a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, it's just a mound. But uh, from the poet's perspective, it is. Uh, Zion is the source of life-giving springs of water and the place where Yahweh defeats the waters of chaos. Uh, are all these from the Psalms? I think they're all from the Psalms. Uh, Yahweh unfailingly protects Zion from enemy attack. Um, and is there one more? Yes, those who dwell in Zion share the blessings of God's presence. All these, interestingly, are taken from the Psalms, but they also reflect... Um, a prophetic uh, uh, ideal. Um, Isaiah, in particular, is, uh, is Zion-focused, uh, Jerusalem-focused. Um, one of the things that some of the prophets, 
some of the prophets might not have been as happy with prophets like Isaiah to talk about Jerusalem that way. Because it got interpreted <coughs> by people as though, as long as Jerusalem is here, as long as the temple is standing, nothing can happen to us. Right? We are secure because the temple is standing. Uh, and that becomes reflected in um, uh, Jeremiah. He criticizes people for saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, it, it, as, as a way of saying, as long as the temple is here, uh, we are secure. Um, and he's going to have to expose the weakness of trusting in institutions, I suppose is the way to put that. Um, while a focus on Jerusalem is appropriate in light of God's commitment to Israel, this kind of Zion theology explains why some Israelites came to believe in the invulnerability of Israel. They saw God's promise to Zion outside of the context of the stipulations of the covenant. Okay. So that's what I was trying to say there. <laughs> Why didn't we just read it? No, exactly. Get the I, I forgot that. I forgot that was coming. Okay, uh, we can go on and uh, talk about the transformation of the human person in relation to God. Um, the prophets talk about a radical cleansing of sin, going to the very roots of, human, of the human person. So, uh, some of this now is going to become really interesting uh, in the next few weeks when we come into Christian texts. Uh, the, the prophets are setting a foundation for understanding what the early church is going to do with their Jewish faith. So uh, a radical cleansing of sin is going to be talked about. Uh, so Jeremiah, this is the covenant I, I will make with the house of Israel after these days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Da, 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 da. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Okay. So this becomes a promise of what's going to happen in the future. And of course... Uh, New Testament writers are going to pick up on this promise. Uh, the the um, transformation will be universal in scope. Let's have a look at what we're saying there. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. So this is interesting. The message now, so this is Isaiah. Uh, the message now is going not just to Israel, it's actually going beyond the bounds of Israel. So all the ends of the earth. I am God, there's no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone forth in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that is in Philippians. Oh, and it's a really interesting text. I can't remember if I bring this up, so I'll bring it up now. This is a text where he says, I am God and there is no other. And then he says, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. And Paul uses this in Philippians chapter 2 of 
Jesus. What in the world is he doing taking a text from a context where God says, I am God and there is no other? It's, it's a very, very significant thing what Paul is doing. Anyways, we're just going to have to hold on that for a, 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 a couple of weeks. But the point I wanted to make here is the message is going to the ends of the earth. Um, uh, the, the transformation of human person that will restore what Adam and Eve had known in the Garden of Eden. Intimate knowledge of God, unmarred by sin and idolatry. Here we got that one. Isaiah 53, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and he will make her wilderness like Eden. Uh, the desert like the garden of the Lord. So Eden becomes the image of restoration. Uh, you have the transformation of the human person. You have the transformation of human society, spoken of by the prophets as well. Uh, here you get uh, restoration to the land of Israel is equivalent to restoration of, a, of the community so far as Israel is concerned. Uh, 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 Jeremiah says, I'm going to gather... Um, I'm going to gather from them all, uh, from, sorry, from all the lands to which I drove them. So in other words, they're in exile, and God says, I'm going to bring you back. And then down here, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they may not turn from me. Okay? So uh, God is bringing people back from exile. Uh, for human society to function as it should, it must have a just uh, government. And here we have the expression of the need for a just king again. Uh, back to Isaiah 9, and a child has been born to us, throne of David and his kingdom and so forth. You're familiar with these texts from Christmas time? Uh, probably Advent time. And then uh, the transformation of society involves, first of all, bringing the nations to submission. This is interesting. And this, is a, this is a theme that comes throughout the prophets, is for the establishment, using Jesus' term, the, the establishment of the kingdom of God means uh, the nations coming under submission. Let's see if we've got... Oh, I don't have one there. Um, they can think of Isaiah... Did I put down Isaiah 2? Uh, no, I didn't. Yes, but, uh, yeah, so you've got the, the nations going up to Jerusalem saying, let us learn of the ways of the Lord. Let us learn... Is it, is it the ways of the Lord or the Torah of, uh, of the Lord? Anyways, the nations are coming to Jerusalem. That's, that's the idea that's expressed there. Uh, and then the long-term aim, Israel and the nations should live in harmony, all worshipping the only God. Oh, there's where I've got Isaiah too. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the vision that the prophets have with regard to the transformation of human society. Uh, it will be restoration to the land. It will be the formation of just government. It will be uh, the conversion of the nations. Uh, 
um, and living in harmony, all worshiping together. Any questions? Did some of the prophets see the installation of a human king as uh, a failure? Hmm. <laughs> uh, um, I'm not sure specifically. I mean, there were kings they saw as failures, mm -hmm. and they were going to critique them uh, very, very much so. But the idea of a human king per se? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Because I've known some, like, um, Christian people who, um, who believe that in a perfect society, in a perfect world, we would just have the Triune God as king. Uh -huh. and, and they don't think much of any Right, so more of a, if I can use a more modern term, more of an anarchic uh, arrangement mm -hmm. where you don't have a ruler, right? Yeah. I don't think that's an Old Testament model. Because he knows we're messed up and we can't live back with that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, well, I'll put it this way, I mean, it's... It's closer to a model during the time of the judges in Old Testament history, where you did not have a long-standing ruler. They would just arise from time to time when they needed to defend themselves against threats. Right. Yeah. Okay. Where are we going next? Transformation of human society. Oh, we have a text here. From Zechariah, thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall come, even the inhabitants of many cities, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. That's, that's the vision. People will come to Jerusalem uh, from the nations to entreat the favor of the Lord. <laughs> Interesting now, as, as we go on, uh, the transformation not just of individuals. Hey, Wendy. Hi. Come on in. There's some higher price seats at the front. Uh, we've got the transformation of the human person, transformation of human society, transformation of creation. And you remember uh, when we were talking about covenant before, and I made the point that covenant actually needs to be seen within the context of creation. Creation is, is the broader theme. So this, we might expect, is that there's a transformation of creation itself, not just of human society. What does this look like? Uh, there's a restoration of fertility and agriculture. You read these texts, you know, this is what is expected in the future. You don't just talk about human flourishing, you talk about the crops flourishing as well. Um, there's a covenant with the animals. Oh, I gotta, we have to read this one. Uh, I'll, I'll 
bet you've never seen this one. I've read Hosea. Have you read Hosea? Then you have seen this one. Hosea. Not necessary that I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Hosea 2.18. I studied the minor prophets. I will make for you a covenant on that day with the wild animals, the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground. Mm -hmm. You know that was in the Bible? Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, there's, there's a concern for creation. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that fits in with the stink, stink bug population. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does not say mosquitoes. No. <laughs> no. <clears throat> uh, total peace in, nat in, in nature. Okay, go back to the uh, Isaiah. Do I have that one here? No. Yeah. yeah the, the wolf dwelling with the lamb. The la I don't know how much of this is um, sort of poetic imagination, uh, but it's interesting that's where the poetic imagination went, is talking about a peaceful creation. You know, like many of the wolves shall lie down with the lamb. I mean, people say, oh, you can't have a cat and a dog in the same house. It won't work, is there? But you know, it all has to do with the attitude and the conditioning you get from their birth and how you raise them. They have some internal instincts. The dog and the cat will go after the bird. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, uh, the wolf will go after the deer because they're designed, their, their teeth are designed to do that. So when we're, I mean, if you want to depress this point, you, you, you have to say, yeah, there is something quite fundamental about the restoration or the transformation that's in, that's in order to have that kind of peacefulness. And of course, then you have to ask, well, what's the wolf going to eat? Yeah. You know, <laughs> all kinds of very interesting questions come up. Uh, but 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 you get the yeah it's the whole food chain yeah. uh, and God created the food chain. question uh, but you get here's the image anyways mm -hmm. of a restored creation don't know um, a new natural order indeed uh, where it gets to is a new heavens and a new earth with no evil in it uh, and this is uh, Isaiah sixty five behold I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, uh, but be glad and rejoice together in that, uh, in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So there's some really interesting questions that come up. Is he talking about doing away with creation and coming back with a new creation? <clears throat> I mean, you could see new heavens and new earth that way. But interestingly, there's still a Jerusalem. Now there is a, a poetic imagination going on here that is using the language of complete transformation with some of the things that we know are still here. Um, so it's hard to pin it down, uh, but... Um, the amount of commitment that God has shown to this world suggests to me that the language here is not talking about doing away with everything and starting over. It's rather poetic expression of talking about a transformation of what we've got. Mm -hmm. 
Does that make sense? What, how that happens, I don't know. Fortunately, that's not my job. Doesn't it say, though, in Revelation and that, that when Christ comes back again, that things will be, I can't tell you which part, but that when Christ returns, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Yeah. That's the reason why Jerusalem shouldn't be in the new heaven. Right, and so at the end of the book of Revelation, you have, behold, I make all things new. So that's in, ve- in, in line with what Isaiah is saying here. Yeah. My grandmother had a lot of philosophy. She said, people, Christians who believe in God and follow his, they will go to heaven. The rest of them will be left on earth in the hell they created. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, one other thing I wanted to say about the prophets uh, is this character, the servant. And this isn't so much because it's um, part of what the prophets are talking about. Um, It's what uh, 2nd Isaiah talks about. But it's really important when you come to the New Testament. So before we got to the New Testament, I thought I'd mention uh, this particular character called the servant of the Lord. Uh, the servant of Yahweh. Uh, there are four songs that have been identified uh, between Isaiah 42 and 53 that talk about the servant. And they're really intriguing uh, uh, songs to read them. You, you can read them. Uh, in the first one, the servant brings justice to the nations. Uh, although he will do so without harming the weak. This is the one about the bruised reed I will not um, break. In the second one, the servant is very clearly identified as Israel, who was created by God and whose descendants God will bless. In the third one, the servant again is identified as Israel, but is also someone who restores Israel and who becomes a light for the Gentiles. And the fourth one, the servant appears as uh, insignificant and unattractive. He was rejected and persecuted, but his suffering was taken by God to be an offering for people's sin. Okay. Now, a number of these come up in the in the New Testament. The last one, <coughs> excuse me, is the text that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading in the book of Acts, and uh, uh, Philip comes to him, and the eunuch asks, "You know, how do I understand this?" And then the text says, Philip began to talk to him about Jesus. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> And this, the third one is one that Paul applies to himself. <coughs> Becoming a light for the Gentiles. So I, I'm just, it, it, it's, an in, it's an intriguing uh, collection of poetry. The servant seems to take different roles in different songs. How is it that the servant is Israel. How is it that the servant being Israel restores Israel? 
and then what's this to do about suffering um, and being taken as an offering for people's sin? And some really intriguing things going on there, but you can see how this is going to be interpreted by the, uh, by the followers of Jesus, particularly after his death and resurrection. Uh, so I wanted you to be aware of this one. Any questions? Okay, and pull, the, pull your Bibles up when you get home and uh, read these, just so you see what's, what's going on there. Okay. We are at the end of the prophets. Let's have a break, and we will come back and... We will talk about the writings, the rest of the Old Testament. So the third section of the Old Testament, after Torah and Prophets, is simply called the writings. And they consist of this group of books. There are narratives, uh, the books of Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they're often hyphenated together, Ezra and Nehemiah, because they're interleaved with each other. Uh, Esther and Ruth, there's narratives. There's wisdom literature, Proverbs, Job's, Ecclesiastes. There are Psalms, as in the Psalms, <laughs> as in Lamentations and Song of Songs. Not just that it's poetry, but that it's meant to be sung in certain situations. So, I mean, most of the prophets is poetry, but it probably wasn't sung in the same way as uh, these things. And then uh, something called apocalyptic that we'll get to in about um, 45 minutes. <clears throat> in the book of Daniel. Okay, let's see. Um, what kind of community does this literature describe? Well, it describes a <laughs> worshipping community. Um, describes a Torah-focused community, as we'll see in Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. It's a, uh, an expectant community, as we see in Daniel. It is a reflecting, a questioning, and even doubting community, as we see in Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And it's a community in tension with outsiders, as we see in Ezra and Nehemiah in particular, and it will contrast Ruth and Esther. Uh, is that the, the last of that? Uh, this is probably a community... Although some of the literature is older, uh, it's coming together. This literature is starting to come together after the return from exile. So we're now going down into the 5th, 4th, 3rd, and even 2nd century before Christ. And the overall question... What kind of people should the people of God be after the return from Babylon? Has the exile ended? 
Why might there be a question? Has the exile ended? I mean, you're back in the promised land. Why would you think the exile has not ended? Anybody guess? You're, you're still not independent. You're still under Persian rule now. Also, not everyone has chosen to come back. As we'll see in Esther, for example. Okay, so this is the literature. Let's, let's, uh, let's scroll through and start with the books of Chronicles. There's two, uh, first and second Chronicles. So here, uh, Chronicles is a history of um, Israel that is parallel to the books of Samuel and Kings. So it's, it's, you, can, you can read them synoptically. Just like you can read Matthew and Mark in parallel columns, you could read uh, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles in parallel columns. Um, the thing that Chronicles does is it mention, it does not mention northern kings. So it's concerned with the history of Judah, if you like. Okay. Um, and then it's interesting how it edits uh, the story. Some things are included that are not included in Samuel Kings. Some things are left out that are included in Samuel Kings. So this is um, uh, an account of the history of Israel that was written perhaps, I don't know, 100 years at least after Kings uh, was written. So it's, it's, it's some different perspectives are going to come out. In particular, the unity of the people of Israel as a 12-tribe entity gets emphasis. So he, um, the writer here passes over hints that foreshadow the division of the kingdom. Uh, in various events, he stresses the participation of all Israel, in quotes, all Israel. And after the division, you remember after Solomon, he insists that the northern tribes did not forfeit their position as Israelites just because they are in exile. So that's one of the focuses of uh, Chronicles. Remember also, he's writing at a time when there is no king in Israel. Okay, that... Um, which would be interesting then. He has a particular view of kingship. Uh, the kingship in Israel is equated with the kingdom of God. There's a tendency towards the democratization of kingship. So you get the, ki the king often consulting with people as opposed to just being wise in himself. Uh, so the, the good king is presented as someone who cooperates with people rather than being confrontational. It's one of the perspectives of the chronicler. 
very important in Chronicles is the temple and worship. Israel is a community of faith to the chronicler. So participating in the Jerusalem community means participating in the various worship structures. Israel is more a community of faith than simply a nation state. There's also in the Chronicles a stronger doctrine of divine retribution than in Samuel and Kings. Um, what, what I mean by that is that there's a correlation of blessing with faithfulness and judgment with disobedience within each generation. That is to say, you're not suffering for the sins of your fathers, you're suffering for your own sins. So the, 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 the whole thing of blessing and retribution comes more immediately, which means if you obey, you will experience blessing, right? It's, 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 it's more um, immediate. And hence the stronger uh, incentive, perhaps, uh, to obey. So the large question is, who was a true Israelite? And this is both a religious and an economic issue. The chronicler seems to have taken a broad and inclusive view on the matter. Everyone from the north and from the south has a place in the chronicler's Israel, as long as they're part of the community of faith. And so worship defines the boundaries of the community. So you get in, in Chronicles, for example, all the interest in who the singers are in the temple, uh, um, who's doing what in the temple. His understanding of, the, of kingship in Israel as the kingdom of God becomes a, a, a somewhat spiritualized view but it makes sense in a post-exilic community where there is no Israelite king, but there is messianic hope. Okay. So that's Chronicles. That's just interesting to see. He, oh, he's going to tell the story again. Tells it just a little bit differently. I just said all that. Sorry. Um, let's talk about Ezra and ne ne Nehemiah. So these two books are about the reestablishment of the community of Israel around Jerusalem after Jews are released from exile in Babylon. All right, this happens in, what was it, 539? When uh, 539, Cyrus uh, defeats Babylon, the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, 
defeats Babylon. The following year, he writes an edict uh, saying that Jews can return to uh, their homeland. So we have a new section in Israel's story. Unfortunately, we actually have very limited knowledge of this time in Israel's history, apart from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, so we're talking about the late 6th century into the 5th century, the 400s, right through the 400s. Um, yeah, there's just not a lot of other evidence we have. So what is this new chapter of the story of Israel about? These books concern a second exodus. What have I got on my next one here? Right. So return from exile. Um, but of course, we, we raise the question, is this really a return? Uh, because, well, you're still under Cyrus. Uh, you're still under foreign rulership. And have you been released from slavery? Like the, like the Israelites coming out of Egypt? Not quite. Not quite, actually. Um, Persian rule is still there. Uh, so that's the question. Is this the end of the exile? Uh, Ezra uh, comes along and you have the reading of the law. Uh, this is Ezra chapter 10. And in, in essence, he reestablishes the community around Jerusalem uh, in the traditions of Israel by reading the law. What's interesting in his reading of the law is that we don't find the same broad vision of God's intention for Israel and for the world. For example, we find a people not released from slavery, in conflict with other nations, and having no interest in blessing other nations. Yeah. There's a bit of a narrow view in Ezra. Uh, in fact, um, Ezra encourages uh, people to repel and aggravate other people rather than blessing them. People on the outside are not welcome into the community. Uh, even those who have married into the community and have borne children. Some of these outsiders are even worshippers of Yahweh. <clears throat> the narrator is not clear whether those who returned from exile were right in excluding those who offered help in rebuilding the temple and who claimed to be worshippers of Yahweh. So it's interesting in the... In, in the whole telling of, first of all, in the book of Ezra, you have the rebuilding of the temple, and then Ezra comes, chapter 10, and he reads the law. Um, and in the midst of this, you have people who were living in the vicinity, and 
it's a bit unclear, but they may have been Jews who had been left and not taken into exile. They may have been Jews from the, uh, from the north who had come down, but interesting that they're worshippers of Yahweh. Okay. But, um, and there's some uh, suggestion that this is the origin of the Samaritans that we find in the New Testament. But what we find with the community that comes back from uh, Babylon is they're at odds with these people. We're not told exactly why. Uh, So before the reading of of the law, Ezra chapter 9, the narrator tells us that some Jews have married foreigners. Interestingly, Prior to Ezra's arrival, this is not seen to be a serious problem. Actually, the narrator never does demonstrate that foreign marriages had anything to do with apostasy. It appears to be that it's the mere foreignness of the marriages that this issue, that is the issue here, uh, not that some are committing apostasy. There's no, um, in, in this issue, there's no word from God saying uh, you ought to break these marriages up. Um, nor does the narrator give his opinion about whether this is a good or a bad thing. It's just there. And sometimes that's, what happens when we're reading the Old Testament in particular, we read something and we're just, the text just leaves us to think about it. What's going on here? Is this making sense? How is this fitting into the bigger story? Uh, That's really the question. How is this fitting into the bigger story? Um, So let's just think about this mixed marriages. So they broke up the marriages and sent uh, uh, sent people apart. Uh, there's, no, there's no comment at all about the obvious problems this will create. Uh, like what, what happens to the children. Um, interestingly, in just a minute, we're going to be talking about the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth was not an Israelite. She married an Israelite. Uh, and she actually becomes the, is the great, great-grandmother of David. That's a very different, and, and there seems to be no problem with that. So in the one case, you have a problem with foreign marriages, and then you have the story of Ruth. Um, and, and also, have I got this text here? Uh, this one, in, in particular, from Isaiah 56, and, uh, which is going to be about the same time. This is third Isaiah, a time of return from exile. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants 
All who keep the Sabbath and who do, do not profane it, who hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. That doesn't sound like the vision we're getting in Ezra, particularly around this issue. Right? Yeah, it's challenging to, uh, because it's there, doesn't mean it's right. So is it there to point out our own Maybe. history of racism? It's, it, it's certainly there to make us think about it. Yeah. What's, yes, that is part of our history. Yeah. Huh. And how has uh, it worked in the past? Never well. I would say, too, it's, it's, it's interesting from where we're going when we get to the New Testament talking about Jesus. Is this the kind of um, way of being Israel that he's actually confronting? The way of um, establishing ourselves by keeping everyone else out. Right? And you can see, perhaps, that, that that's, um, you know, sociologically, that might be a way uh, uh, people thought how do we maintain our identity, having come back from exile? Well, let's keep everybody else away. There's some sense to that. But it's certainly not in keeping with the, uh, the uh, tenor that we had from the, from the beginning with Abraham. Uh, all the nations of the earth will find blessing in you when he was just one person. Uh, and then expressed again here in uh, Isaiah. Can you use that now where it says, I think you don't be unequally yoked with you know, believer, unbeliever kind of thing? Is it sort of thrown into that? <clears throat> oh, that's an interesting uh, text to think about in light of this. Um, yeah. I was thinking too when you were saying it about when I grew up, there were certain things that. People who were divorced, you'd stay clear of mm -hmm. the children. Because yeah. they came. You know, there's all sorts of little things like that. That and, and they were all people of faith, but that was the way they protected themselves. Yes, that's and, right. And, and, and people getting married when they felt the parent blessing because it might be a black person married, you know, a, a white person or something like that. And, and, mm -hmm. and they would actually take their name off the, the you know, out of the family. And that's not way back then. That's just in the last 50 years. Yeah. Uh, that's okay. It's just the rest of that. Okay. So Ezra and Nehemiah uh, raises some interesting... Um, we didn't talk about Nehemiah very much, sorry. Nehemiah is the story about building the wall uh, around Jerusalem. And Ezra's more the story about rebuilding the temple and then reestablishing the covenant community. Esther. Esther's an interesting story. Um, what are we going to say about Esther? 
Esther. So Esther is the story about uh, the people of God outside the land. The story is about a Jewish woman named Esther who is in the Persian king's harem who eventually becomes queen. And she learns of a plot by the chief official Haman to put thousands of Jews to death. Esther uses her cunning with her friend Mordecai, uses her cunning and persuasion to get the king to kill Haman instead and to kill all those who hated the Jews. And so this is the, what Purim is about, right? And whenever you hear the name Haman, when you're in a Jewish family, that you make a lot of noise. Ooh. Bad Haman, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, so what's the point of this story? Well, I suppose one point is that God cares for Jews outside of the land. Seems to be the main theme. It's interesting, a book where God doesn't appear. Uh, but God looks after his people providentially, moving in subtle ways to ensure their well-being. And he's working through uh, political intrigue, intellectual endeavor and courage through the actions of his people. And the message is that one doesn't wait for God one gets on with the job at hand using whatever means one has at hand. That seems to be the message. But Abraham did that with Sarah and their handmaid, and that didn't, was not the... <laughs> yeah. Well, you know? Like, yeah. Come on, can you make it clear for us, please? Well, let's just, let's just sit back for a minute. Okay, that is the story. Now, but there seem to be some questions that are raised from this story. First of all, how is it that there are so many Jews still living outside of the land? Why are there so many, what turns out to be thousands and thousands of Jews who have not come back? Second question, how is it that there is a woman in the king's harem, a, a Jewish woman in the king's harem, and how is it that no one knows that she is a Jew? Her Jewishness is not identified. How does that happen? Um, how is it that Esther so completely blends into Persian culture that she's not even known to be a Jew? And then the end of the story that I didn't tell, uh, Haman is killed. But so are, um, according to the text, hundreds of thousands of people who wanted to take it out on uh, the Jewish community. So this is what Esther arranges. Yes, instead of the slaughter of Jews, she's preventing a pogrom. But instead, there's a slaughtering of people who hate Jews. Is that a good thing? 
Wasn't that because they felt that they were following the order to to kill? Um, Haman wanted arranged for no. There was an edict to go out to kill yeah. the Jews. And yes, there was. And that so that was sort of that was the current culture of the land. You know, kill the Jews. We were told to. Yes, so so I can see why you would want to punish Haman. Mm -hmm. But why is it? Uh, I think the text is hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Well, didn't that order go out to all of the land that this is what was to happen? It it it, yeah. it may have. Yeah, and you can't change. But then, the but then why? I, I mean, is in what sense is this Israel bringing a blessing to the nations? Showing us too that Esther was listening and willing because what she wanted to do, you know, was told to do in essence could have been her own life and that. I mean, she was wanted to obey what she felt she was supposed to do. Well, I'm sure she, yeah, I'm sure she did. But I'm raising the question whether that is consistent with the trajectory that we've been seeing in the Old Testament. Okay. Uh, because remember, in Esther, God doesn't speak. Mm -hmm. He would speak through weather, so wouldn't he? Yeah, but in, in the book of Not Esther, he yeah, doesn't no, speak. Right. Yes, yes, right. right. So we're trying to make sense of how does this story happen in a larger story where the point was that Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. Okay, so all, all, all of these things, you got a lot of Jews who, for some reason or another, decided not to come back. Uh, it's like, you know, Jews who didn't want to leave Egypt. Uh, but they didn't come back. Um, and, and you've got the Jewish community continuing here. And then you've got this story of Esther that at least raises some questions. Uh, some have even suggested that the story of Esther might be a parody on the concept of peoplehood. The people called to come out from among the nations so that they could bless them, called to be a special and distinctive people, depending on God for everything, that people has decided to stay in exile, to merge into the culture with no special identity, to survive through dependence on their own resources, and to hold on to a narrow and nationalistic view of peoplehood that supports the destruction of other people rather than their blessing. Maybe. It's an odd one. But this is an interesting thing that the stories in the Old Testament do for us. Is they, they, pause us they, they cause us to pause and say, hey, what's going on here? Is this fitting? How is this fitting with the overall purpose that I see of what God is doing and we start that's why it was so important that we started with Abraham okay. just thinking about that like yeah. <clears throat> okay so Esther is this going to be the purpose of God's fulfillment for gathering over people that so it will be 
pointing to the fulfillment, the purpose. Sorry, is is what going to be the fulfillment? The the very point of what is all this happening is it's still God's purpose of for the fulfillment. So God's purpose will be the blessing of the nations, which will be part of his blessing of creation. That would be the big picture. We're talking about the bird's eye view. <laughs> That's definitely the bird's eye view. Okay, let's move on to Ruth. We're talking about the, the women in the Old Testament. Uh, Ruth is the story of a Moabite woman. The Moabite was a small nation on the east side of the Jordan. And she marries a Jewish man, uh, but he subsequently dies. Uh, but Ruth decides to stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi, as she moves to Jerusalem. And Ruth shows kindness to a man named Boaz, whom she eventually marries. Okay, so Ruth is a Moabite woman married twice, each time to an Israelite, and the book does not suggest that this is a problem. There's nothing in, the, in Ruth that suggests that's a problem to have a... Because it's a woman writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I see it. I mean, we don't know who the, who, who the writer is, but just socially, I, I doubt that women would be in a position to write. No, I, I meant yeah, this whole symbolic. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, throughout the book of Ruth, God is quietly looking after Naomi and Ruth, and it arranges things so as to bring the story to a happy conclusion. Very good. Uh, the book of Ruth bears out what has been suggested elsewhere in the Old Testament, namely that Old Testament law is not to be understood as defining the virtuous life overall. So remember we talked about um, goodness is not the same as uh, legal obedience. Right. So um, the, the, the point in this story is there, uh, for Boaz... Uh, how was Boaz related? Boaz was related in some way. Um, yeah, uh, he had no legal expectation that he should marry Ruth, so, uh, um, this this widow. Uh, so him doing so was an expression of goodness. It wasn't a legally required thing. Um, okay, so that's that's Ruth. Can I ask one? The, the, the scripture from Ruth, is it, uh, where you go, I will go, your people will yeah. Why didn't they use that as a marriage thing? <laughs> they put it on the yeah, yeah. It sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not working in a lot of marriages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, I just don't, I could never, when I, you know, I, first I thought, then when I studied Ruth, I thought, what's that got to do? Yeah, it has to do with a, um, a cross-cultural marriage where one, one is uh, um, making not just a marriage but a conversion <laughs> from one to the other. Okay, that's Ruth. 
Uh, let's move on to wisdom literature. Moving on quickly, we better move on quickly. Uh, so wisdom literature is the literature of Proverbs, but also of Job and Ecclesiastes. These are the people who are concerned with wisdom, obviously. Um, uh, they're talking about wisdom, not just information. Uh, interestingly, um, there are a number of central themes in the Old Testament that are not found here, such as the Exodus, the story of Israel, um, the covenant and promises and so forth. Uh, what is in view here is much more an observation of the way the world works. We're learning from observing how the way the world works. It's a very different environment that we're in when we're in the wisdom literature. Uh, interestingly, the literature, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament shares commonalities with wisdom literature from Israel's neighbors in the ancient Near East. Mm -hmm. And I would just believe me on that. I'm not going to show you the examples. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of similarity. Um, the goal of wisdom literature, uh, you could call it rules for success and happiness. It, it, th this is about how to live well. Uh, some of the recurring themes that, um, that uh, come up, uh, reward of, of work, honest work, righteousness is, is more important than wealth, the power of words, the importance of family, actions and consequences. All of, all of these are recurring themes. There's, for the most part, from chapters 10 and on, there's not a lot of order in the Proverbs. They just seem to be cluttered in there. But these are some of the recurring themes that uh, come out um, in the Proverbs. But you can think of them as rules for success. This is what your parents will teach you uh, to get on in life. Um, some of the distinctiveness of wisdom in Israel, in particular, the distinctive is the fear of Yahweh. Uh, so the um, wisdom writer will say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And what's in view here is uh, essentially living in covenant faithfulness. Trusting God for salvation and the provisions of life, obeying Him, uh, this is what it means to fear the Lord. That's right. I used to read that in the Bible. Why should I be afraid of? I don't get it. And then I That's right. The word fear Again, I think I I I, yeah. I I I just think Narnia is really really good here about uh, the fear. Oh, you've got to. I mean, you've got these children. I mean, there's a very powerful scene of one of the girls uh, coming up who, who, who is dying of thirst, and there's a river in the woods, and it's the only river, and there's a lion sitting by the river. And it, 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 does she come? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it, you, you get the sense of fear, but also the invitation. Here, I have a river for you. <laughs> uh, so that, 
that's part of uh, fear, uh, fearing the Lord. But you're right, it's not about being afraid, but it is about... Uh, it is recognizing a, the power. Yeah, yeah, recognizing the power and that we live within this uh, realm. Uh, we, there are... Um, there is a call to live faithfully. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will uh, make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So that's, that's a good expression of uh, what it is to fear the Lord. It's, it's all determined by um, whom you're worshipping. <clears throat> the character of the worship is determined by that. Um, uh, some years ago, one author wrote a book called uh, Worship is a Verb. It's something we do. Um, some years later, uh, another scholar came back that yes, uh, and worship is a transitive verb. That is, <laughs> is a, you worship someone. You worship someone, right? The, 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 there's a there's a direct object of the of of the verb. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Uh, the challenge. Okay, so that that's wisdom. Rules to live by. Then you have some challenges uh, to. Uh, uh, to wisdom. The book of Job presents the story of a good and wealthy man who loses everything even though he is righteous. And this raises the question of how traditional wisdom can be applied. Will people be righteous even without reward and punishment? That's the, 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 um, the question that Job raises, so for example, Proverbs 10.3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Really? Proverbs 11.8, the righteous is delivered from trouble. Always? Um, be assured, an evil man will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will be delivered. Always? So all kinds of questions that get raised. Uh, are, are, are these things always true? So Job calls into question a simple understanding of a relationship between righteousness and wealth or happiness. While teaching of the Proverbs may be true, we are limited in their application because we all stand in Job's position. 
We do not know what is going on behind <coughs> the curtain. So that's the problem. We all stand where Job is, and we don't know what's really going on. Yes, all of those Proverbs may be true in the book of Proverbs, but we don't have the perspective to say, in every case, this is how it's going to work. You said that righteousness is kind of versus wealth and happiness. And how much happy, I guess, how do you define happiness? Like, people are searching happiness, and yet they can't understand people who quite content to swing back and forth in their hammock on a yeah. summer's afternoon. You know, yeah. that is, well, you know, and so it's defined happiness. It's, so one of the things that uh, that the story of Job raises is the importance of lament. We don't always know why things happen as they do, but rather than this leading to apostasy, in Job's case, curse God and die, or to doubting one's own integrity, like Job's friends were suggesting. Job calls for us to remain in our integrity, to bring our complaint to God, and to be prepared to be humbled. So it turns out that wisdom has real limitations. Job is righteous and, the, and, 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 and blessed at the beginning and again at the end of the story, but in between there is unexplained suffering. And what is called for is not an explanation of the suffering, but lament. what Job offers is not an explanation of the suffering but a way to cry out. And it's okay to cry out. It's absolutely okay to cry out. Like you hear people say, I, I don't want to question God, but sometimes we go because we look to God we're asking Him why. Yeah, the idea, the idea of not uh, questioning God comes from people who have not read the Psalms. Yeah. One of the things you you come away with from reading the Psalms is you can say anything you want to God. Yeah. Book of Ecclesiastes uh, also is a challenge to wisdom. Uh, Ecclesiastes questions the truth of Proverbs, particularly as a sufficient framework for understanding life and the ways of God. Um, you, uh, you, you, you've uh, heard the, the text, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, I, I'm going to suggest a, a, a different translation. It's the, word, it's the Hebrew word hevel, which literally means breath. It's this. It's not nothing. It's Fleetingness. It, and, and so um, I, I would translate the, the merest of breaths, says the teacher. The merest of breaths. Everything is a breath. 
I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun, and see, all is fleeting and a striving for wind. So it's not so much as vanity as it's fleeting. It's trying to grasp onto something. When I read Ecclesiastes Nothing is new under the sun. Yeah. And isn't that so true? Well, we're, we're, we're going to get there. So what is the point of working for gain? That, 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 that is to work to get ahead in life. None. Creation itself, so says the writer, goes on and on, but in the end there is nothing new under the sun. That is, for all the work that creation does, it doesn't gain anything. Amen. So why should you? <laughs> that's, that's the text, that, that's the message that's coming across. It doesn't mean that life is meaningless, but if meaning and purpose are to be found, they must be found with humility and submission to the way of life which is directed by Yahweh. I think I put yes. Um, Okay, I, I want this text. Here's, here's a, a good text to uh, summarize the teaching of Ecclesiastes. Go, eat your bread with enjoyment, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has long ago approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Do not let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your fleeting life that are given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil, at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Okay. It's not particularly optimistic, and a Christian perspective is going to... Um, there isn't life after Sheol in, in Israelite thought at this time. Okay, So this is where it ends up. And so the point is, you know, live life to its full. But, you know, don't get consumed with being great and getting along. <laughs> okay, just very briefly, the Psalms. Um, Psalms are uh, built out of the experience of liberation. Israel may have adopted literary forms from the surrounding cultures of her expressions in her expressions of worship. It was her experience of liberation that gave rise to her worship. As in the song of uh, Miriam, uh, after they crossed the Red Sea, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is where psalms get born. Uh, it, it, in other words, they don't start with um, a, uh, a pondering on creation, they start with a reflection on their liberation. That's where Psalms are born. Um, and you have a current application. 
of the uh, historical li uh, liberation. Israel made the historical event contemporary. We've seen this before. This is a text actually from the contemporary Passover ce uh, celebration. Uh, it was not alone our fathers whom the Holy One, blessed be he, redeemed, but also us whom he redeemed with them. In other words, this is what the Jewish community does. It makes contemporary things that happened in the past. Uh, it, then you get Psalms reflecting on God's saving deeds. And I've given you these. I really encourage you to look them up. Um, uh, Psalms reflecting on the Exodus. Psalms reflecting on God's saving deeds in general. Psalms reflecting on God's acts in history. Um, and, and, and this provides them the framework for understanding other psalms. Psalms of lament, uh, being cries for God to act as he has in the past. So uh, psalms of lament are prayers for help. Psalms of thanksgiving are responses when God does so. And... Hymns of praise, they expand the reflection on God's activity to consider his acts in the whole world and in all creation. Okay. Those are your three main categories of kinds of psalms. There's psalms of lament, psalms of thanksgiving, and then hymns of praise. So I'm having to move a little quick, quickly so here. Uh, Lord is my shepherd. Well, it makes me down at Green Pastures. It would be a. Um, I was. I say it's a it's it's a hymn of praise. It's thanking God for. He's a, um, and, and so we we can uh, classify the kinds of psalms uh, that that we have. There's uh, community laments and individual laments. And again, have a look at some of the psalms that are listed in your, in your notes, and you'll see what I mean. Uh, expressions for the whole community to lament, uh, expressions for the individual to lament. This is a very interesting uh, challenge, actually, I think, to Christian worship today. We don't do lament well. We don't. There's actually more lament psalms than anything else, than any other kind of psalm in the book of Psalms. Uh, they complain well. <laughs> I'm just going to move on. Uh, songs of Thanksgiving. Again, there's community songs, there's individual songs of Thanksgiving. Uh, hymns of praise. Uh, they, yeah. Praising God for, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is in me, bless his holy name, etc. Um, and then there's psalms for various special occasions. So you've got royal psalms. Um, there's, there's one for a wedding, a royal wedding in there. There's songs of Zion. We've talked about Zion. Uh, enthronement psalms. They seem to be psalms uh, composed for the enthronement of a king. Uh, and then the uh, various other liturgies that are going on. So have a look at those, and uh, you see, oh, okay, there's different settings, different situations that these psalms would be used in. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. In, in, in the coronation, they use it as a very religious part mm -hmm. of it. Do they use 
In the uh, English coronation? Yeah. I don't know. That would be good to know. I wouldn't be surprised. I just, I remember they say that they, yeah, it yeah. was a very religious part. People were, were, some people were surprised it was so religious. Oh, I don't, I wouldn't be surprised. That would be most appropriate. Uh, would be appropriate. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know. Uh, songs of Trust and Meditation. Uh, and there's a, a, a variety of songs of trust, uh, songs that, that sound like wisdom songs. For example, Psalm 1. Uh, Blessed is the person who walks not in these ways, but who walks in, uh, who meditates in the law of the Lord. Uh, it, uh, it sounds like wisdom teaching. Mm -hmm. okay. So I, I encourage you to, to, to go through and get a sense of the different kinds of psalms. Uh, that you have in the in the book, and I'm just going to skip this part here. Who wrote the song? All kinds of people. Oh, yeah. all, 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 all kinds of people. Um, there's a tradition that David was a a psalmist, and indeed, uh, I imagine that, that many were written by by David. Uh, but um, most of the psalms we don't know who wrote them. But if you think. I mean, we think of our of our of our songs in our hymnal today as sometimes we know the story that lay behind the the hymn, right? And that it, oh, we find that uh, heartwarming or something, or it helps us to understand the song. Most of the times, actually, we don't. But that's just the point: is that songs have meaning even though you may not share the specific experience that the songwriter experienced. Mm -hmm. And you may not know anything about it, but it still may speak to you. That's the point of, uh, of the uh, songs. The book itself wasn't brought together until the post-exilic time. I, I do want to end, though, uh, just a, a word about apocalyptic. Um, a, an apocalypse, it's a genre of relative, uh, revelatory literature with a, with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being, like an angel, to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal insofar as it envisages an eschatological salvation, and spatial, insofar as it involves another uh, su supernatural world. The point is, it's, it's a visionary uh, genre where it, uh, the vision is either of heaven, or is it other things than heaven? I think it's usually heaven, or of the future. That's, that's the kind of genre it is. That's not in our notes. Oh, that's not in your notes? No. Sorry. <laughs> so you've got to, you, 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 you typically have somebody going on a journey with an angel, and he's been showing things, either of um, what's going on behind the scenes, so in another world, or in the future. That's what, that's what this is. The book of Daniel is the only full book in the Old Testament that falls into the category of apocalyptic, particularly the second half of the book. 
the book of Daniel concerns the life of Jews in their 2nd century BC conflict with the Assyrian king Antiochus IV, who was also known as Epiphanes. In other words, he was an epiphany of the God. That's why the name. Uh, between the years 60, uh, 167 164 BC. Um, the, so, so Daniel, uh, the, the, the way the story reads, is of Daniel and his friends who have been taken exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. And they have various things happen to them, and they do various things. Um, and then Daniel, from ch chapter 7 on, uh, uh, Daniel has these various visions, and there's an angel that helps him to interpret these visions and so forth. Um, but the book itself, uh, that's what the content is, but the book itself, comes from the second century. So it's somebody in the second century writing this as, as though it's in the uh, sixth century uh, to get across certain, um, certain ideas. The ideas being God preserves his faithful people. So you have the story of Daniel in the lion's den, you have Daniel's friends being thrown into the furnace of fire, uh, and, and God is there to preserve those who are faithful. Right? That's 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 one of the points there. Also, God will defeat Israel's enemies and establish His kingdom. Uh, and I'd love to have time to uh, show you those th uh, those texts. Uh, but also that God's people will share in God's kingdom. That seems to be the point of the book of Daniel. But it's, it's an interesting uh, way of writing. It's, it's like writing a story from a few hundred years ago, and maybe using some older material, uh, to get to the point that we are right now, because we right now are in a position like Daniel, we are under um, the oppression of this uh, Syrian king Antiochus IV. He has come into the temple, he has established a, a pagan altar in the temple, he's offering swine, for example, as uh, uh, offerings in the temple. So this is a time of persecution, and what we need is a message of hope that God is going to uh, establish his kingdom and that people who are loyal, people who are faithful uh, in their piety and they're faithful to Torah uh, are going to be preserved. Okay, so that's, that, 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 that's the story. Well, what's interesting is that it turned out to be true. Uh, so this is where... Uh, uh, Daniel is one way of talking about the story. The books of Maccabees are another way of talking about this story. And it turns out in 164, in fact, the temple was reclaimed by Jews. Um, so we think Daniel was probably written just before 164. Uh, 
But, but the point was to remain faithful, to remain pious, um, and God will establish his rule. So that's the book of Daniel in a nutshell. We've gone over time. Sorry. Yeah. Hey, but we got through. We got through the prophets and we got through the writings. Uh, I encourage you, though, to, to do some reading. And if you like, uh, start on the, uh, the, the exercise of the identifying texts uh, in the Old Testament. And we'll see you next week.